Good morning, church. Good to see everybody. Good to hear your voices sing out with some passion and conviction. It's very encouraging to me as I get to open God's Word. If you're a guest with us, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor here. Privileged to do so. As our guest, we hope that you feel a deep sense of belonging as you're in worship with us. We'd ask that you stop by the welcome booth, which is out in the welcome center. There's a little book there which I've written. It talks about our aim as a church. I'd love you to have this, help you to get to know us a little bit better. You can pick it out up on your way out this morning. The gardening season is just around the corner. Someone actually texted me from the congregation this week and said, hey, what are your garden plans? I appreciated that. We talked back and forth about what we're planning. Here, though, is a picture of the current state of my garden, not too impressive, but that's about what you'd expect for a a garden in the upper Midwest in February. This time of year, it's not so much about planting as it is planning your garden. And yes, I live a very boring life. It's time to order your seeds if you're going to buy them online. It's time to sketch a layout of your garden. I know, it's boring. Think about where you're going to put the vegetables and the flowers. If weather permits, it's time to get out there and do some cleaning. I've been out in my garden a couple times over the last few weeks cleaning things up. I like to set last year's garden on fire to the neighbor's consternation. I actually had some police show up a couple years ago, and I greeted them as they entered my backyard. I said, ah, did the neighbors call you? No, we saw it three blocks over. <laughs> the three biggest issues, though, with gardening are the water, the sun, and the Soil. Very good. I heard some of you say it. In the next few weeks, I'll start conditioning, which is a fancy way to say adding manure to the garden. I learned a hard lesson a couple years ago with adding fertilizer. I added the fertilizer, and then I put the seeds in right away. Waited weeks and weeks. Nothing came up. I didn't know you were supposed to wait between adding the fertilizer in its freshest form and then adding seed. The acidity of the manure actually burned all my seeds up. I learned this after complaining to the people from whom I had bought my seeds that they sent me a bunch of duds. Blame shifting. Now, as I offer my garden expertise, I do so because Jesus compared our readiness to receive God's word with the soil's readiness to receive seed. In a parable famously called the parable of the sower, Jesus identified four different types of soil. And he urged his listeners to evaluate what type of soil they might be. How ready are we to receive God's word this morning? The four types of soil are on the screen. He said, first of all, there's hard soil. Picture in your mind that well-worn path. The sower of seed throws out the seed and it just lands on top of the well-worn path and never penetrates the soil. He went on to say, from the top of the soil, the enemy plucks the seed as food for himself so that there are never any plants that come up in that soil. We have an enemy this morning even that would love to pluck God's word from the top of our hard hearts so that we never bear any fruit that, as Matt said, brings us joy and brings God glory. 
Then there's the rocky soil. Not much soil, fairly shallow soil with lots, lots of rocks. The seed goes into the soil, but because the soil is shallow, the roots are shallow and with just a little bit of hardship. What Jesus likened to persecution, the plant withers, doesn't go on to maturity and doesn't bear fruit. Then there's thorny soil. The seed is planted, the soil receives it, the roots go down deep, but so do the roots of thorns which grow up right alongside the plant. Jesus was very particular and he said these thorns choke out the plant so that they don't go on to maturity and bear the fruit that God would have them to bear. And he named the, the, the thorns. He was very specific about the thorns. He said the worries of this life choke out the fruit that God longs to bear in our, our lives. The deceitfulness of wealth, suburban Christians. The deceitfulness of wealth. Our Savior named that as a thorn that could prevent us from bearing the fruit that God longs for us to bear, the pleasures of this life. You know, God's the giver of every good gift. Pleasure was his idea. But when we make pleasure the end goal of our lives, then it chokes out the fruit that God would long for us to bear. Then there's finally good soil. Good soil is, receives the seed, and it grows to maturity. And the maturity bears lots of fruit, love and joy and peace and patience, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, long-suffering, self-control, right? These are some of the fruit of the Spirit. And no one believes that Paul's lists in the New Testament are exhaustive. This is just really a smattering of some of the fruit, I believe, of what the Spirit would bear in our lives. In the book of the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8, Jesus says, The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart. How's the condition of our heart? What's the condition of the soil in our lives? They hear the word, they retain it, and then he says, By persevering, produce a crop. Now, I raise Jesus' teachings on the soils and our readiness to receive God's word because our passage today presents two very different responses to God's word. We're in Acts chapter 17. Turn with me there in your copy of the scripture. The two different responses happen to two different cities. Paul, Silas, Timothy, Luke, they're going city to city. And you could, you could say today, today is the tale of two cities. As Paul preaches in both cities, and they respond very differently. The first is Thessalonica, arguably hard soil, because they respond to the message of the gospel, by and large, by chasing Paul and Silas out of town. The second city is Berea, who had good soil, and they received, we're told, the gospel message with eagerness. Lord willing, we're eager this morning for God's word. We got up, got out of bed, got to church this morning. We sang with some passion and conviction. We're ready. We've done our bit of preaching. Now we're ready for God's word to be planted into our lives. So as I read the tale of two cities this morning, what type of soil are we? Am I? I texted a 
three or four preachers this morning spread out around the county, one over in Kane County, and said, I'm praying for you today. I'm praying that we'd be good soil, that we would experience revival, that I would experience revival, we as preachers would experience revival, our congregations would receive God's word and experience revival this morning. Got several amens back from folks, which was a blessing, these preachers. So after evaluating our readiness this morning to receive God's word, what if we find that we're hard or that we're shallow soil or that we're thorny soil and there are these thorns growing up and choking out what God would long to do in our lives? How do we respond to that? I'll work hard to give us some possibilities. Acts chapter 17, let's read about the response of Thessalonica. Verse 1, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where they, there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on three Sabbath days, that is, over the course of three weeks, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I'm proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Now, let me just pause there. When Paul goes into a synagogue at this time, first century, and he's preaching about Jesus, the Messiah, as king, he doesn't have the New Testament. He's preaching from the Old Testament. And I just want to throw this out there. If we had to preach Christ as king from just the Old Testament, people of God, could we do it? Because he's doing it. What passages would we turn to and hold up as proof that the Messiah must suffer and die and be raised again in the Old Testament? I just throw that out there for you to ponder. Some of the Jews were persuaded, joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks. Greeks, the God-fearing Greeks would have been hanging out on the edges, the periphery of the synagogue and quite a few prominent women, he notes. But other Jews were jealous. These are the people of God. This is the the community of God. They were jealous. So they responded with jealousy, rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. Now, I assume that Jason's house is where Paul and Silas had been staying. So if you have the gift of hospitality and you regularly welcome people into your home, interesting to experience Jason's, uh, or to consider Jason's experience here as he's practicing his gift of hospitality. So they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before the city officials, and they were shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there's another king, one called Jesus. So they're preaching Jesus from the Old Testament scripture as king of the the Jews, the Messiah, the Christ. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, Then they made Jason and the others post-bond and let them go. We'll pause there for just a minute. 
If you've been with us over the last few weeks, we've been considering the missionary journeys of Paul, first with Barnabas, first journey, and then later with Silas, second journey, second missionary journey. That's what we're considering here today. At this time, he's traveling with Silas. Timothy's in the group as well. Luke, who is actually the author of the book of Acts, he's capturing these experiences, and he writes them down later. Later, we're going to read a, a short verse from the Gospel of Luke. So Luke writes the Gospel, then he writes the Acts of the Apostles. He writes, here's Jesus and his earliest followers. In this morning's passage, Paul's preaching in the synagogue of Thessalonica, top left on the map. He's going to get run out of Thessalonica and goes to Berea next. Paul later, there is a church that's birthed, interestingly, in Thessalonica, and he writes later, we have two letters, uh, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, to these believers. The Jews respond negatively, or some of them respond negatively to the gospel. They start a riot there in Thessalonica, and Paul and Silas sneak out of town. Let's continue in verse 10. As soon as it was night, the believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character. And if you have your copy of God's Word open and you're an underliner, I'm going to come back to this. Underline noble character. The Bereans were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? How did he know this? How did Luke discern this? For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. As a result, many of them believed, as did also a number of the prominent Greek women and many Greek men. But when the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them went there too against the crowds, uh, I'm sorry, ag agitating the crowds and stirring them up in Berea. The believers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed in Berea. Those who escorted Paul brought him to Athens, we'll be there next week, and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. Silas and Timothy would come soon from Berea. So Berea responded dramatically different than Thessalonica. Berea received the message of the gospel with great eagerness, while the Thessalonians responded with jealousy. How do we respond to God's word even this morning? What's the condition of our hearts, our readiness? If you've been privy to or watching the revival that's gone on at Asbury over the last, I think it's now 12 days, Asbury's a university in Kentucky, Wilmore, Kentucky. 12 days ago, they had a normal chapel service, uh, part of their regular routine as a Christian university to have a chapel service, and just no one went home. They didn't go back to their dorms. They didn't go on to classes. Instead, they've been meeting for 12 consecutive days in the chapel, and thousands have flocked as a result to the campus. And there's stories of uh, confession and public confession, repentance of sins, conversion uh, out of Asbury, healings as well, exorcisms as well. It's interesting to me how the story of revival is being received by the people of God as we consider the two very different responses of Thessalonica and Berea. There is a response of jealousy 
And there's a response of eagerness for the message. And I would agree that when we think about revival, we can, if we're not careful, respond with jealousy, suspicion, cynicism. Caution makes sense to me because revivals are very messy. I've been watching ad nausea, the videos coming out of the revival. And there's good reason for caution. I grew up in a church that was revivalistic. You know, all-night prayer meetings and lots of emotionalism. Revivals can be messy. We should be cautious. But we've also, I feel like I've seen some jealousy among the people of God and some cynicism as well. Frankly, we gather every Sunday. We gather in Bible studies throughout the week to be revived. And the notion of revival is just an awakening. It's a move from apathy for the things of God to interest and excitement in the things of God. And so this is certain. We should be eager for that. I should be eager for that. I should be eager for the Lord to work anew and afresh in those areas where there's apathy in my life to move me to a higher interest and excitement for the things of God. And so the normal state of things is that God is drawing us in closer. He's calling us to repentance on various issues. And it's interesting to have a passage this morning that juxtaposes two very different responses. Again, revival's messy. We can be cautious. But I wonder about suspicion, what that might say about my heart, cynicism, what that might say about my heart, jealousy. Last week on Wednesday, Stuart Ruck at um, Church of the Res texted me. He said, hey, we're having a prayer meeting tonight. Would love to have you over. Church of the Res is on the west side of Wheaton. I was in a small group with uh, Stuart Ruck for, he's the bishop over there. Um, they're Anglicans, so they have bishops. And um, I was in a small group with Stuart for three or four years in which we were sharing personally and got to know him really well. I said, what a blessing, and went over to be a part of that and just to be a part of a hundred some odd folks. They're revivalistic in their culture. My daughter asked me this week, what's a revival? I, I said, well, I don't know that I've served you too well, honey. Uh, but it's, it's the normal working of God calling us back to himself. It's what we should long for. And the blessing of Stuart reaching out is, is there's not jealousy, there's not competition between churches. And they had me up on the platform, they prayed for me, and I prayed for them, Lord, do this in our churches. Do this in other colleges and universities. Awaken our nation. I think the year was 1857, 18 to 1858. There was a businessmen's prayer meeting in the city of New York that spread across the nation and brought a million new converts to Christ. The Great Awakening, 1730s, 1740s, 1750s. The Second Great Awakening, 1760s. The move of God to awaken, uh, I would say to, uh, how would I say it? There's this individual renewal, then there's this local revival, and then it grows to this awakening. This is the normal paradigm of God's work around the globe. Individual, churches, the collection of individuals, and then awakenings. That's how God works. There's a, there's a, um, a revival, I think it's in the Rose Bowl, on Tuesday. 
God's work on the West Coast as well. Thousands were out on Santa Monica, Huntington Beach yesterday, praying for God's move in L.A. We should say yes and amen to that. What else would we say? Is it messy? Are there people faking it? Is there emotionalism? Yes, guaranteed. Guaranteed. It won't be known for several years whether the fruit of the Spirit, love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control are also coming out of that. It's like going into a kitchen and wanting to bake something but not wanting any mess. We want the product but don't like the process. All right, let me see if I can find where I was. So the Bereans responded with eagerness. Their eagerness, they examined the scriptures daily to see if what Paul said was true. They wanted truth. They knew that they had nothing to fear from the truth. This is a new word from Paul. Let's match it to scripture and see what it says. Rather than being territorial like the Thessalonians, What does Luke attribute the different responses of these two cities? Berea, eager, diligent, Thessalonica, jealous and violent. How does Luke explain it? And it's in verse 11. The Berean Jews were of more noble character. He's talking about the condition of the Bereans' hearts over and against. He's comparing it to the Thessalonians in their hearts. What's the condition of our heart? Let me ask you this. Uh, how, is the, how is your character? Are we noble-hearted? Or are we ignoble? Dishonest, jealous, resentful, envious. That's how the Thessalonians responded. Petty, mean-spirited. While the Bereans considered the gospel message based upon its merits, hearing the message rather than shooting the messengers, they, were, they heard the word of God, they diligently searched for it. Why does this matter? Luke's point in describing the Bereans as noble, it seems to me he's saying that not all soils are equal. Not all soils are equal. And he's getting that from the Savior, who said there's at least four types of soil. Hard, rocky, thorny, good. Not all soils are equal. Some people are hard to the word of God. Some people run fairly shallow. They don't cultivate roots, depth, to endure hardship and persecution in their faith. Some people are, have thorny realities in their life where the roots have gone down deep they've grown spiritually but they're also filled with anxiety this was Jesus's description of the thorns that that choke out mature fruit anxiety worry the deceitfulness of wealth the pleasures of this life I'm sure there are other potential thorns not all soils are equal Now understand me clearly, 
all people are sinful and all are in need of the gospel of God's grace, but not all people are equally sinful. While all people are sinful and in need of God's forgiveness, some have better character than others. Here's the rub for, for those who claim to be following Christ. We've got to be honest with ourselves. There are people outside the church who have better character than those inside the church. That's just the reality of it. Not all soils are equal. We can be saved and have terribly shallow soil as a reality. We can be saved, the word of God planted in our lives, and be growing thorns all over the place. We can have really poor character, in other words. Character traits such as humility. How do we do there? Honesty. How do we do there? Gentleness. I think of the Bereans' diligence to search the Scripture. I run a Bible study on Thursday night for men. And uh, in just a minute, I'll show you basically what we do on Thursday night. It's the takeaway proposed for this morning. But on Thursday night in the group I was a part of, there's four of us. One man asked another man, well, in the gentlest fashion possible, do you ever actually open God's Word and read it? Actually open, you know, a hard copy. And the other man responded with, utter humility. No, it's been a long time since I've done that. Well, that type of humble confession just turns over the soil so that the hard pack can now receive the seed. Does that make sense? Not all soil is equal. Some people have better character than others. And the church needs to be honest. There are people not following Christ who have better character in some instances than those who are following Christ. And all of us are in need of the gospel of grace because we've all fallen short as sinners. And we need the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. But we also need to go on to maturity. We need to grow up and go on to maturity bearing a harvest of righteousness. So we need better character. I say that based on Jesus' teaching. On the screen, juxtaposed, is Luke's description of the Bereans with Luke's um, ex, um, recording of what Jesus taught on the parable of the soils. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, and they responded with eagerness and diligence. Jesus taught about the good soil, it stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering produce a crop. So how do we condition the soil of our lives, of our hearts? If we're hard or rocky or thorny, what do we do? On the screen is a picture of some of last year's plants from my garden. 
Hard to believe that spring will come and summer will be here and we'll see some beauty again, right? The first year to plant flowers, I had to plant and find, I had to find and plant some idiot-proof flowers. How do we condition the soil of our hearts? How can we be more Berean? How can we grow in our character so that the truth of Scripture penetrates our lives? The Apostle John recorded seven statements uh, in his gospel about who Jesus is. He's just quoting Jesus. For example, he said, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. I'm the gate. And so Jesus, in these seven statements, is trying to explain how people can understand the role of the Messiah, the bread of life, right, the gate, the good shepherd. But he also said of himself, Jesus said of himself, I am the vine. And then he said, and my father is the gardener. Folks, this is really good news if you have a hard heart this morning or if you have a a rocky heart or you have thorns growing up in your life and you're not sure how to get those thistles out of the ground. God the Father is the gardener. This is the only scripture that I'm aware of that juxtaposes the role of who Jesus is and who our Father is, our Heavenly Father is, and how they work together. I, it's beautiful for me, and it's comforting. It means that the Father is at work in my life and in our lives to produce fruit. He's the one that's working in our lives. You're not here by mistake. You're, you're not within earshot by mistake. The Lord wants to cultivate and condition the soil of our hearts. He wants us to be open to his Holy Spirit and his goodness in our lives. He's working. We're not alone. It doesn't all rest on us to get the thorns out of the ground or to get the soil to run deeper or to turn over the hardness of our hearts. It doesn't all uh, hinge on our activity. It involves us, but our Father, he's the gardener. So here are my thoughts on on our part or how we're involved in it. There's four activities. These are all we do on Thursday night, really, to condition the soil of our hearts and to to see the Lord work, confess our sin. Confession is one of the best ways to condition the soil of our hearts. It's something that should happen daily because sin happens daily, by the way. Confession effectively turns over those portions of our heart that grow hard because of secret sin. Confession clears the rocks that prevent our roots from going down deep. Confession pulls the thorns that choke out productivity. As we confess, we are acknowledging our lack of character. We're agreeing with God that we're in need of his grace. Second, asking. Scripture teaches really clearly that we have not because we ask not. What are we asking for? We close virtually every service with an invitation to pray. Steve and Pam Bolt will be down front. They want to pray with you today. I know it takes a certain amount of humility to come forward for prayer, but we know that God gives grace to the humble. We need to be praying that we are better soil. We need to be asking that the Lord help us deal with these thorns in our lives and take our, our roots deeper into the soil. Every Saturday night, Sherry and I close the evening. Our heads are usually on the pillows. 
our eyes are closed, we're drifting off to sleep, and I will pray, Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your word tomorrow at church. Third, listening. Good soil produces fruit by hearing. This parable of the soils is told in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In one of them, and I forget which, uh, Jesus closes the parable by saying, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, we all have ears. But who is hearing? Who is hearing? Remember, the, the seed that's being scattered is the word of God. Anywhere scripture is read publicly or anywhere the person of Christ is, is celebrated, God's word is being scattered like seed. We need to hear it. We need to absorb it. Most often when I pray this morning on the Zoom prayer call, we, uh, I read through Psalm 66 before the prayer call started, but I also read it alone. And what I do is I just stand up and I open to Psalm 66 and I read it aloud. I read it aloud because I need to hear it. <laughs> I need to hear it. Finally, persevering. The diligence of the Bereans to search the scripture is for me an indication of the character needed to persevere. The seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word of God, retain the word of God, and by persevering produce a crop. We often want a silver bullet, spiritually speaking. We want that one shot, that one activity done one time that will miraculously put us over the top spiritually and solve all our problems. I don't see that as existing in Scripture. Instead, I see what Eugene Peterson, a, a beloved pastor, called a long obedience in the same direction. That's what we're called to. Do not grow weary of doing good. Don't grow weary of doing good. Persevere. Expect expect hard times and ask God, it's part of the pray, give me endurance, give me perseverance because that's what's needed. I'll pray for us toward that end. We'll close our service. Father, we thank you for your word. We've read it publicly as Paul tells us to be doing. Lord willing, we've heard it. It's being absorbed into our lives. We ask that you would turn over the soil. We confess we're sinners. Deeply in need of your grace and goodness and your work as our gardener to condition the soil of our hearts. We ask, Father, that we'd be good soil in the days ahead. We'd ask that you bring to our minds sins that need to be confessed and turned from, repented of, and put away. We ask that we'd go on to maturity. We'd grow up no longer being infants tossed back and forth by every wind of doctrine, but that we'd go on to maturity and stability in you. Thank you that in maturity, when we're mature, there is stability. We no longer have to be tossed. Thank you that there's emotional stability when, we're in, when we grow, go on to maturity. Give us that, Lord. Father, we ask for perseverance. Many of us are in the heat of battle this morning, addressing issues 
at work or in family life or in the community. We're trying not to grow weary. We don't want to grow weary in doing good. Father, give us strength to persevere in the days ahead. In Jesus' name.